Welcome to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD, the podcast that delves into the diverse and impactful roles scientists can play beyond the lab. With me, David Mendez. Welcome to this new episode of Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD. Today, I have the great pleasure of having with me Tim Dacey. Dr. Tim Dacey has a long history in AI and learning science and recently published the book Wisdom Factories, AI, Games, and the Education of a Modern Worker. After 30 years at MIT leading AI development for diverse government needs, Tim leapt into education due to concern that minds won't be ready for the jobs that remain human. He has a smidge of teaching experience at corporate, higher ed, and K-12 levels. Tim has atypical perspectives on the future of schooling, built from a blend of AI expertise, experience with many industries, depth in the science of learning and judgment, and more than a decade leading development of game-based learning tools. Welcome to Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD, Tim. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. I'm I'm super, super happy that you're here today. And um, before asking you to tell us a little bit, a little bit more about yourself, um, I just want to say that one of the reasons uh, that uh, that I, I'm excited that you're here today is that I feel that uh, there's there's impact um, to be had of AI in higher education of course the first thing you think about and that you've heard about already at least i've heard about has to do with um people you know asking ai to write <laughs> to write mm-hmm. uh, assignments and things like that but of course uh when we're, if you're thinking about research about uh, graduate research and and what comes after i am sure that you have insights on uh, how ai will impact and maybe already is impacting all of that uh, but what i what i really feel that is uh, kind of the the crux of this question is are we ready to embrace it and how are the new generations of graduate researchers future pi's future researchers and, and future citizens uh how are they going to be impacted? How? What part of their life and of their professional life uh, is AI going to have? And what are caveats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, of course. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to looking at it from different angles. You know, potentials, caveats, and and you, you do cover a lot of this, and and you even go into the psychology kind of behind this question in your book. So that that's why that's why I'm super excited that you're here. Um, but uh, now let's let's maybe start uh, as I, I tend to do in this podcast uh, in your, with your connection to research to academia and in your specific case to AI. Can you talk a little bit more and, and share with the, the listeners where what your journey was uh, up till today uh, on the academic side of things? Yeah, it, it started in graduate school, which for me was late 80s, early 90s. My PhD program was in biomedical engineering. So I, I had done an en- a typical engineering track undergraduate, but I'm the sort of person, this will be a theme that c- 
comes up a little bit later, but I'm the sort of person who is just broadly curious about a lot of things. So, you know, as I was doing the engineering track undergrad, I started dabbling in, in taking biology courses and psychology courses and just other things I was interested in um, and, and decided in graduate school to make, make my path interdisciplinary. Um, so although I was doing AI, this was the early days of artificial neural networks, which is still the basis of, of modern AI, um, it, you know, a pretty exciting time where we were just transitioning paradigms to, to something new, but I was even different among that crowd because I was focused on modeling the brain and understanding the brain and interpreting brain signals. And so uh, the AI development that I did was really devoted to bioscience in that way. And so as a, as a consequence, you know, I was not only trying to get machines to learn, but I was also thinking about how humans learn and, and how the brain works. And, and that has continued through, through my career. Um, and again, just sort of uh, a, a common a common theme of mine is going to be for graduates to really think about how they can get variation and variety in their experiential path. Um, so I immediately left my graduate program. I went to work for what is the national security part of MIT. It's actually hidden away on an Air Force base um, uh, away from campus. And, and I started working on air traffic control research. So my first job assignment was to write AI and associated software to uh, keep planes from crashing due to certain weather phenomena that have been causing problems that in that era. So, uh, and that that went on late, later as I, I got away from direct development and got into leadership to uh, back into bioscience. I started doing chemical and biological defense work for, for the military and for Homeland Security. I started in public health work which came back and I was involved in, in COVID response in, uh, in, in the past few years as well. Um, various kinds of disaster management and, and logistics and medical treatment, a whole bunch of different fields that essentially my job was to develop new business areas for that part of MIT to figure out how we could have how technology could have impact in new realms. So I was constantly diving into different business areas, trying to understand the way people thought and the way they decided, which is really intimately tied into how AI or technology will help them. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, uh, being the you know being uh, on on this podcast beyond the thesis, I, I just I just want to ask, ask this question of uh, does that journey that you that professional journey with you know into the MIT into that specific department and then within it was uh, is it something that required a PhD how did you you know find about that opportunity that work opportunity how did you navigate your way into that space because it's it's the first time also I hear of that type of position well I mean uh, this is a laboratory called Lincoln Laboratory that's part of MIT uh, and, and I got there because there was another worker there who had studied with the same PhD advisor. Um, but when I went to interview there, it's very interesting. You know, I'm a biomedical engineer, and this was a place that didn't do biology. So, <laughs> so it certainly took, I think it was four interviews, maybe four or five months before I got the job. Um, so it was a, 
it was a long, long stretch, but you know, essentially what they ended up saying in, in, in their, their move to hire me was they wanted thinkers rather than, than necessarily specialists. And they invested for a long term in terms of people that would grow with an organization. Um, you know, one of the things I know, one of the big purposes of your podcast is to serve that, that emerging PhD population. And, you know, I think there's a, there's, there's a path that I took that's a little unusual, but I think most people eventually find, just finds them. Um, and that is, I, I wasn't necessarily ever all that focused or concerned about what the technology or the um, you know specific information w- the, that I was using. I was really focused on can I solve big problems, and and that took me in a lot of different directions. Um, some of it found me, some of it I sought out, but I, you know almost inevitably. And PhDs were common where I worked. I mean, uh, there were probably well the, now there are about four thousand people there. Um, I'd say. Uh, you know, if you take away the administrative staff, probably half of them are PhDs. Uh, so, so certainly very educated people all around me, very smart people all around me who taught me all kinds of things as I, as I went forward. But I also brought a different perspective into almost every problem I served because my background was varied and different from those around me. Um, there's a, there's a, I think a, a common f- funnel, I guess I would call, or a pyramid, um, where as you move toward your PhD, you're increasingly specializing yourself. Maybe, maybe getting to a point where you're ha- you're duking it out with ideas and, and and philosophies or techniques that are, you know, in common with very few other people on the planet. Um, so you, you increasingly are, are sort of told to get to something which is a new unique contribution in your field, but that forces you to, to narrow over time. And, and that's not what the work world forces you to do. Even, even if you were to take your PhD and continue in academia, the most impactful work over the last several decades has been shown to occur at these seams between disciplines. So um, almost everybody I know who's been out of graduate school for more than 10 years will say, I never imagined doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and that's, and that's so, been my experience too. <laughs> and so even though your schooling journey increasingly narrows you, I think the key thing is being able to keep that mind openly curious to a lot of different perspectives. Um, and that takes effort. That takes effort. You know, when you're cramming to get your work done and get your degree and get out, it's easy to just focus on the literature in your little realm um, or in the perspectives that come from it, from others in that, in that, that realm. But it's, you know, when I, when I used to interview people fresh out of school, I would ask them questions that really were trying to get at how broadly they kept their perspectives and views and attention. Um, you know, I would ask them about the philosophies of approaches to problems in their field and how those had pros and cons. I would ask them about the major issues that had to be settled in some way and how they might approach those. Even if they had, I would ask them about the other people in their laboratory and what projects they were doing just to see if they were paying attention, <laughs> right? Uh, because it's that, 
it's that broad perspective. It's the variety um, that you eventually accumulate, which gives you that base to be able to take your career in a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, often I mention this this um, problem of you know graduate school often uh, favoring or or inciting you to to almost nurture a tunnel vision of sorts and how it's not helpful to what comes after because you need yes you need to be laser focused on your subject and on you know what you're going to write on your thesis but you need some either a different moment where you kind of open your horizons and 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 accrue some other information or so, you know uh, grow your network Uh, learn about spaces that have nothing to do with what you do and i think i think and it feels to me that it's kind of what you were looking for asking these questions are people do people have this this wider view of what they do and of of even what people are doing around them which is a a good indicator i guess (laughs) and and that connects really into the theme of my book in a lot of ways and where ai is pushing i think our skill sets And, and so going to your book Uh, the the sub so wisdom factories and the subtitle is AI games and the education of a modern worker, and you know, modern is a word that you know that you know we, we've been heard we've heard since the 20th century you know modern modern modern, but today it feels like uh, and uh, and I was telling you before the interview how you know even as a as someone who produces a podcast some tools that are leveraging AI have changed the way I work. So it feels that this last, you know, few months, years, there's, there is a, a paradigm shift that is happening. And, the, and there's questions that are coming up and should there be a moratorium? There's, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, deep questioning, I feel, uh, in the community and especially, I guess, in the AI community. But in the, it's so... It's so um, It's, it has impact on so many of us that I think that even the, the public, the, just the general public, has some opinion about AI now. And, and it's quite surprising because it's, it's a fairly complex domain. But now it's in, our, it's in our homes, it's in our computers, it's on our phones. Um, and I, I really wonder if we can start you know, get, taking what you just said and, and the, the title of your book, to start with this question of, Who is the modern worker? When you think, when you talk about, uh, you know, the, uh, AI games and the education of a modern worker, where do you th- where do you see things going based on who, where we are today with all these uh, Chat GPTs and uh, and Leonardo AI and Mid Journeys, etc., that are popping left and right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to say off the bat that. You know, I think 2023 will be one of these years that we look back on as a dramatic turning point. Um, you know, akin to when personal computers first emerged or the iPhone first emerged, um, the emergence of AI that's truly multifunctional, apparently thinking, quote unquote, um, and able to do you know, certain forms of reason, all of these words that sort of rely on comparison or human brains are, are difficult when we talk about AI that may or may not be doing things the way we do things. Um, but 
the capabilities are are dramatically different than they were even a couple of years ago. You know, I just saw advertisement for a product, for example, David, that will take your podcast, translate it into multiple languages, and have those words coming out of your mouth oh through, my. Your, through, <laughs> through your through your 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 visual, right? And we'll do that at, at a few clicks of a button. So so these are capabilities that are really changing everything. And I think what's fundamentally different about even those other transformations that I talked about, or you could pick up some, you know, pick on some major historical innovations like electricity or engines or things of that sort is the speed with which AI is going to, is having impact. Because unlike with iPhones or personal computers where there's a capitalization, there's a, per, a set of purchases that have to be made in order for infrastructure to build out, um, the infrastructure is there. It rides upon the internet and wireless and, and computing. So, so you, you know, AI can go from idea to product in days or weeks. And, and, uh, and, the, and we're at the really the, what I would call the baby step here. There's fresh new AI that we're just starting to learn about. The amount of innovation that's happened even in the last few months has been incredible. So, so the question really becomes, what does that mean for the world and what does that mean for education and nobody knows right so a lot of what i'm going to say is sort of you know i i think incontrovertible but it's also not surprising right if you don't know what future jobs will be if you don't know what people's role will be relative to machines then you need to have people who are very flexible right who can adapt quickly who can learn new things quickly. That's one sort of fundamental principle, right? If I've got uncertainty, I need to have flexibility. Secondly, if, if the, um, the tasks you are going to do are going to be largely in managing AI and, and other technologies, um, and I think that will be a big part of a lot of workers' jobs, is configuring their AI team to do a lot of the work for them. So what that does is it raises the abstraction level that would, which we deal with information. So rather than having to know a lot of detail or to produce a lot of detail, if AI is going to do that, if AI is going to take your podcast and make it into you know, the French version or the Spanish version or whatever it might be, and you don't have to put the labor into doing that, well, then much more energy can go into thinking bigger picture, figuring out the new paths for your podcast, et cetera. So too with, you know, simple, you know, if you, if you've tried to use one of these large language models or these image generators or, or any other forms of AI that are sort of new and, and, and out there, then you quickly realize it's, it's about how can I frame the problem and the task that I'm giving it well enough that I can get it to do exactly what I want. So rather than the detailed information being the crucial thing, I might still need the ability to vet what comes back because I don't necessarily trust it, but I might not need to natively have that knowledge in my head. So, and that's really where work has been going in the long term. Over the last many decades, we're moving from knowledge as a currency, right? In my father's er era, 
or even when I first started working in the in the 1980s um, through internships and the like, what you could remember in your head and how you could do re- repeatable manual tasks and how accurately you could do them, that was what made you most people valuable in the workplace. Um, there was a layer of people that would manage, a layer of people that would interact with other departments. But for the most part, you know, in a typical company, you had sales and marketing and development and business, and they were all siloed off. There were relatively few people that exercised what I would call free thinking, creative approach uh, approaches to problems. That's changed entirely. And that started with computing, which started remembering things for us. And, and then got to a point where we could look up stuff from the world's knowledge easily. And so, and, and so it allowed humanity to, in, in, in the workplace to deal with increasingly novel problems, increasingly strategic, multidisciplinary problems, and to deal with more complex problems. Okay. Some of them, because the world changed, my life is more global, my supply chain needs to be more complex, and some of it because technology allowed us the ability to address bigger problems. Okay. So as an example, I last year was consulting for the drug development industry. Okay. Most drugs historically that are out there and highly successful went after one molecular target to end. But the the diseases that are left unsolved are the ones that are have all these complex um uh, multiple targets involved in some network dynamic. And unless you understand that whole system and that all of that complexity, you're probably not going to address cancer or other things very easily. So technology has both allowed us to, to tackle those bigger problems, um, but it's also because you know the world has emerged, has evolved. So we're getting more complex. We're getting more abstract. We're getting more big picture. We're having to deal with a lot more uncertainty and multidisciplinary. And so the notion of specialists and, and education is growing specialists is giving way to the notion of education should be growing generalists. And that's a very, very different paradigm. It is. And, and that, that's actually the question I was going to ask you. It, it was, you, you were talking and I was feeling, okay, so first we're, you know, robots, let's call them, call them like that just for this just for this idea, you know, the, this idea, you know, in the past robots are going to work and we can chill. That, that was one of the, the, in the eighties, you know, and, and, um, uh, it feels to me like, uh, what you're saying is AI is here. I, I feel, uh, and let me know what you think that we actually need to, to invest more in getting educated to be able to leverage these tools, but also that the, the student the nature of what studying and what learning is is going to change you it's not it's it's no longer and it's already less and less but it's no longer memorizing a lot of stuff but it's 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 different can you can you go a little bit into that you know how 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 is life going to change for let's say med students or you know engineering students what different part of their brain do they now need to train more uh considering that AI will be part of their lives and their professional lives eventually more and more going forward. 
If you imagine that at any time you can talk to an AI and get detailed information. Now, this is a hard sell for a lot of people who look at current AI and see errors coming out of it. Um, so, but you know, if you if you if you understand what's going on under the hood and see what's happening to that process, the the accuracy and and um, uh, of a lot of these methods is is improving pretty steadily. Um, and I think what you have the other sort of faith that you have to have. So I have faith, maybe that's the wrong word because I'm not rooting for it, but I have faith that that AI technology will continue to improve dramatically. Okay. In five months, ChatGPT went from scoring the lowest 10% on a legal bar exam to scoring the high in the highest 10%. Okay. It GPT-4 now scores, or chat, the chat GPT built on top of that, now scores as an IQ of 155. Okay, <laughs> so that's, that's equivalent to two out of every 10,000 of our folks, right? So is it able to do everything people can do? No, right? But it's able to do more than most any individual can do, right? I can't draw like it can. I can write as well or better. But most of the world's population can't. Um, so what we have to then think about is what can humans do uniquely? And what we can do is often really understand the context under which decisions and information get used. We can look at other perspectives that may not be part of what AI had to consider or was able to consider. Um, we can fold in, uh, we can collaborate with other human beings in, in very good ways. And so all of those things are, are what I'm calling these big picture skills. They ride upon, you know, education, at least in the U.S., has, has long had this view of building what they've called 21st century skills. So usually the list is creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, some form of tech savvy, especially with computers. Um, but the, those have been desires that haven't been realized very much. Most of what we do is still divide up our schooling into subject areas that are based on areas of knowledge. And we get people credentials that say, I know a lot about this knowledge domain, whether that's as a chemist or a social scientist or whatever. Um, the notion of graduating somebody who's a creativity expert or or a critical thinking expert isn't really present in most places right now. So, so the question is, how are those skills built? And those skills are built through really varied experience. Uh, they're experientially learned. It's why. And so, you know, your original question, I, I'm losing track of because my <laughs> mind has been rambling here. But I, <laughs> but I think, I think you were you're sort of getting at what's what's the skill set that's different in the modern world. It's it's mostly that I've got to deal with a whole bunch of more uncertain, complex, novel, multidisciplinary problems, and what that forces us to. We still need knowledge, right? Knowledge is the basis for all decision making. But it forces us to a different abstraction level for knowledge. So, for example, back in the day, I'll call it the moon launch era, right? 
I needed to crank through calculations by hand. Maybe I had a computer. It could pretty much do simple calculations over and over. And, uh, and as time has gone by, very, very few people now do math operations in their work. In fact, the people that tend to do math operations in their work are trade workers, right? Who may correct instruction worker who's calculating new measurement or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, instead, people use computers to perform calculations. And that the real art in the workplace is understanding what math technique is appropriate to use to address a given problem and then have the computer do it. Or how do I parameterize a math technique so that it, it performs correctly? Um, that's a very different skill, right? That's, a, I'll call it a meta-knowledge skill that rather than me knowing the particular techniques in detail, I now need to know the strengths and weaknesses of, of various techniques and when they're best applied. Not at all related to how well I can solve equations, right? Very different skills. Or in the workplace, I may need to understand what are the right processes that I can use to address a problem that are most likely to mitigate some of the judgment imperfections or biases that people have that are able to take advantage of the multiple perspectives that will make a solution better. Um, though, so the, the, the folks that tend to be really good at being generalists end up having a lot of this meta-knowledge about how to address problems. Um, and, and, um, and that's the knowledge that ends up being really useful for so I, I, I really stress, especially for you know, emerging students, when you're in, and I would ask these questions when I interviewed folks, and I probably hired on hundreds of different PhD graduates over the years. Um, I would ask them about, I would usually take their research, whatever they focused all their energy on, and I would change an assumption or a constraint. And I'd say, okay, you know, you did on, on this particular problem, but what if this problem were a little bit different in the following way? How would that affect what method you picked? Okay. In other words, when does your approach break down and you have to start to go to another approach? And, and the answers you would get from those people who had been thinking broadly about what they were doing in the path they were going down, they had already thought through some of those things, Right. But for those who had sort of taken an approach kind of mechanically from their, from their, their graduate advisor or followed something else that was in the field and applied it and hadn't been thinking about that variation, okay, is, is this really the appropriate way to go or not, that would come out immediately. Um, the other thing I would often test is what their willingness was to do different things. I once had um, a chemist that I was interviewing who at the time was working on, this was a couple of decades ago, but there was a newly emergent field of what we call carbon nanotubes. And, and this, this researcher had focused their entire studies on that. But I didn't have any carbon nanotube work to give them. I had a lot of other interesting problems. that, And I wanted to know, which, was she willing to do other things? And she said, sure. I would happily work on any other form of nanotube. 
Um, <laughs> so, so that, well, that, you know, that, that, that's not what I was looking for, right? I was looking for, I was looking for, um, you know, what essentially I was saying to my employers when I came out and was looking for a job, which is you give me a hard, interesting problem that makes me be creative, welcomes a, a new approach and, and is a hard enough problem that I can keep my brain engaged for a while, I'm in, right? Um, there's much more of that in the work. There's much more of that even in the academic world. You know, so many more professions. If you look at what the advertisements are out there for assistant professorships, most of them have some kind of interdisciplinary tie. You're going to be in this department, but you're going to be cross-linked to some other department we want you to to because we we know that these innovations come from whether they be in teaching or in research they come from interacting from with other places with seams between the disciplines so now where it be it be, it was used to be that the discipline itself was the destination yes <laughs> then the seams between the disciplines became more important now the seams is the only place you want to be because the because the experts will be the AI, and I know that's difficult. It's not it's not there. I think one of the difficult parts of this is that I'm talking about what is probably only a couple of years away, um, but it's not there yet, right? So right now, that's not what people are doing. But there's a massive transformation that's about to take place in workplaces, where employers decide what can I have AI do and what can what do I need people for. And it's going to change everything about how people are hired and deployed, I think, eventually. That's super, super interesting. And, and uh, let's keep our, you know, let's keep seeing and, and, and keeping our ears and our eyes open to, to what happens week after week, month after month. Uh, and, and, and maybe we'll talk in two years and see where we are. Uh, I have a question from the audience. Um, But I really want to just make a point of you just talked about transformation, and that's where I want to go next. I think I, from what I understood, uh, from what what I understood from what you said is these AIs that are now AIs and AI applications that are now burgeoning. One of the things they are not is they are not human, and there's things that are that that only. They are very human. This thing of collaborating, of think, you know, thinking in a group of people with, with different backgrounds to find something completely different, or you know, discover a new domain of study, etc. And I, I, it feels to me that there's that's uh, where we need to focus uh, our attention going forward, because, like you said, the expertise will be will be able to delegate it to these these. Uh, anyway, AIs or AI applications, etc. That, that's the feeling that I'm getting now. The use of AI technologies by students—is it something that you've discussed? Is it something that you've reflected upon? Uh, are there uh, things that you've seen, you know, good, you know, things that are working and that are good, and maybe caveats uh, um, that exist uh, that you can maybe share today? Let me take this from two different angles. So from a student perspective, look, if you're outlawed from using it, don't use it, right? There's, there's a certain, there are times when you need to learn a skill, right? And you, do, and you need to learn it without the technology doing it for you as a prelude or precursor to being able to use an AI and have it 
the combination of you two do it even better. Um, but, but in general, absolutely. If you're a student, the only way you learn how to use these tools is by using them. I mean, these are very experiential kinds of technologies and anyone who's tried to play with, you know, an, an, an image generator and try to and I've you know tried to get it to do what I want and you know beat my head against a wall when it doesn't or the text generator you know the other day I was was t telling ChatGPT to help me with a course design and it kept spitting out a few sentences that I just found unuseful and i kept telling it don't give me that information and it kept giving me that information and finally i said if you give me this information again an innocent person will die and <laughs> and it stopped <laughs> but but you know i didn't know the only reason i thought that would work is i heard a prompt engineer suggest it um so look the only way you learn about these technologies is to to use it and um and, and you will need to use it Right, because in the workplace, whatever workplace you're in, it's about getting to solutions as quickly and as effectively as you can. And if you get there with AI better than you get there manually, other people will do it that way. And if you're not skilled, you're going to have to figure it out. So, so yes, use the technologies, use it in ethical ways. Um, uh, now, from the from the instructor point of view, I take a very different tact, which is I say. Y your first order of business is to a make sure you're getting you know ethical reliable information from students on their performance levels which means you cannot assign things the way you've been assigning things right it, it, you're much better off giving people an in-class writing assignment and and in getting some sense of their innate writing ability um and having the expectation that they use ai when they go home uh, okay. Actually, Priyanka has a follow-up. So she's saying, I'm a lecturer of human anatomy in medical in a medical college. So is it advisable to the students to use AI for research, for example, developing research questions or literature reviews? And the feeling I'm getting from what you're saying is by using this, you know, they, they'll be able to learn how to leverage AI to get to a better end result. But I think it's it's not advisable to use AI and then copy paste what comes out of AI onto a, a paper. Do you have a, a that, that's on? right. It's not, it's not look, if, if I'm trying to learn how to write well, um, a reasonable early step, like one of the, one of the most difficult things to give a student, if they're learning how to write or if they're learning how to code, for example, is to give them a blank sheet of paper or a blank screen and say, do it. Right. So when I was learning how to code, I would ask, Instead of reading the manual, I would ask for who's the best coder. Let me look at their code, start from there, modify it, and go from go from go forward. That was a faster path to competency. Same is true with writing. Look, I mean, it's a, it's about knowing the 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 strengths and weaknesses of these methods. So, if you're using ChatGPT or Bard or one of these other tools, well, they've been known to um, to, to feed, feed up totally fake references and literature, right? Um, so not great as a reference tool. Okay. If I want to, if I want to find the best 
publications. Um, there are, if there aren't already, there are going to be tools that are specifically set up to do research better, and that will have guardrails to make sure that they're more accurate and won't hallucinate, as is the common term for, for making up things that, uh, that the AI would do. Um, I happen to think they're superb tools for ideation. You know, as I mentioned, I was just going through a course design on systems thinking um, that I was going through, and it was a wonderful partner to to uh, brainstorm with me on what would be modules in that class and how I might reorient my approach. And I had ideas it didn't have, and it had ideas I didn't have, and that was wonderful, right? So factual recall, right? Sure, but be suspicious. Check out what it gives you. Um, or you can get into trouble. I know that a lawyer, for example, tried to tried to use Chat GPT's argument in court, and it was using a whole lot of made up cases, and the judge caught him on it. So, <laughs> so be be careful. Um, you know, I think I think with respect to like with respect to the anatomy professors' general field and how that's going to emerge, the future workplace for an MD. They're going to have an earbud or something where they can say, you know, AI, I'm looking at X. Tell me what part of the anatomy this is. Or, you know, uh, you know a virtual reality to look through the skin and, and, and show me labeled anatomy. Right? Does it mean I never need to learn all of the, uh, all of the detail of human anatomy? Well, maybe not, right? It's probably useful, more useful to have a reminder of something you already knew uh, that AI gives you than, than something from scratch. But the reality is, after you've left medical school for several years and you've been in a specialty, you probably don't have all of that information at your mental fingertips um, to, to recall when you get something that's a little bit different from what you're used to. Um, so if you're, I used to work with trauma surgeons at, in, in the Boston area because we were developing, um, AI to help army medics. And, 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 and so we had conversations with, with, uh, with some of the trauma surgeons who, who were also professors and teachers of, the, of that skill. Um, most of the more, most of what they talked about were the deficiencies of people coming out of school were not with their factual knowledge recall. It was about their judgment and decision-making in a, in a work process, in a diagnostic process. Um, and, and so much, much more practice with those judgments and decisions will be necessary in order to support the, the functions of people and much less about the anatomy as, as de detailed pieces of knowledge. Um, now, again, the problem is this transition, right? If you're currently teaching the course and you, and you want somebody to get out and get hired and know what they're doing, they're going to need the knowledge, right? But the AI is going to be there very soon. And so the bigger, what, what that'll lead to is less of a, of a push on what the details need to be and more of an emphasis on making good judgments. Trauma surgeons, for example, you know, when there's a, when there's a bullet wound, right, and, and they, they get somebody rushed into the ER, the, the, young, the young trauma surgeons will want to conduct a bunch of tests to figure out what's bleeding and where the bullet is. And the experienced trauma surgeons will look at that and say, 
each of those tests cost me delay. And, that, and that's going to mean more bleed out and more death. And so I'm going to go in and figure it out as I do it. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so you can't teach that judgment skill without putting people in situations where they have to make those judgments and they see the consequences. And that's the form of instruction that's going to need much, you need much more of and much less of, you know, multiple choice tests on what the bones are in the foot. <laughs> it's, it's very, very interesting. The, the, reflect, the, the image that I'm getting from what you're saying, and there's another question from the, the audience, but the, the image that I'm getting is looking back 20, 30 years, there was an effort or an incentive to, you know, the, the person who could the most act and perform as a robot, let's say, because they could recall a lot of detail in, was valued. And now it feels to me, and, and maybe it's a bit, I'm waxing poetic a little bit, but the idea is, no, get human, become more human and, and, and hone in on those human-only skills, be it, you know, learning by... Uh, by shadowing someone or by being in a situation versus by by just learning you know book learning etc it's a, it's an interesting it's kind of a, a transformation it's a big transformation that's coming up I, I feel from what you're saying let me make one giant caveat to what you just said because I, I do agree with what you said but the concern of mine is that those human only skills that we generally refer to most people stink at <laughs> okay so so let me so for example you know ai is 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 a lot of ai is to help human decision making right it'll make some decisions we have to weigh that with other factors and make some kind of judgment um the people the mostly in the psychology and the economics world who have studied human decision making um generally their their work shows that humans are poor judgers um If you put doctors or lawyers or others who have to make judgments into specific situations and ask them to decide, the variability in the answers you will get is well beyond what you would want it to be. <laughs> you know, it, and, so, and so there are a lot of circumstances where it has been shown that algorithms perform better than people do at making squishy judgments and that human judgment is highly variable and subject to too many biases and weaknesses. So yes, we need to get at those more human skills, but if we're not good enough at them, AI is going to take those roles too. And that's the part that I think there is no upper limit to the abstraction level that AI can make a decision at. Um, not, nothing fundamental. If I fed it in a whole bunch of MD decisions and had gave it enough of the underlying information that the MDs had available to them, there's no reason to think the AI wouldn't decide those two. There's, a, there's kind of an interesting path. For example, I'll give you an example. Um, in the worlds of radiology and pathology, where human image interpretation is a big skill. Um, the AI to, let's say, pick out cancers from a, from a CAT scan image will often do better than any of the, than, than humans do. 
which is weird when you think about it because they're trained based on the, the human judgments in that field. But it turns out those judgments are not consistent. Um, you know, between umpteen people can make a decision and, and, and many of them will get it wrong. Um, and the, what a, the reason AI does better is because it, it, because it gets, it sort of minimizes that, that inconsistency. So we have to get better at making judgments. And the big, the biggest contribution of the book isn't saying that we need those human skills. It's saying that school is not on track to develop those skills better. There's this last question, which kind of uh, um, relates to Priyanka's question from um, Dr. M.D. Alamin. And it has to do basically uh, with um, are, are institutions, educational institutions, checking for AI-generated uh, work? So to what extent is AI, AI widely used for generating scientific manuscripts in academia? And how do academic institutions like MIT or other authorities evaluate the quality and authenticity of AI-generated scientific papers in their peer review processes? So I think what the question that's being asked is, are people publishing things that are made by AI, and are there tools to find them out? I don't think at this point in any specialized field that AI is generating much of, of the literature. Um, you know, I've seen it done really, really by people who wanted to test the system and make a point, right? They wanted to be able to say, hey, I got this through the peer review. Um, but it's, it's, it's for show and tell. It's, I don't think that's really happening. Now, it could be used as part of a, of a writing process right? Help me design an outline for this research. Help me generate some initial text. I've done this before with, I did this with a video series I just put out. I had AI generate the text up front. I didn't use any of it in the end, but it helped me with some of the organization that I, that I kept. Um, so I don't think it's happening very often. I will say if you think, and there's a lot of folks out there advertising AI various forms of AI to detect whether something is AI written. Um, and I, I would say writ large, those don't work. Um, and they've been, they've been scored and shown to not work. It takes very little modification of an output from AI to suddenly make it something that another AI can't recognize as AI generated. So the, the, the idea that we can spot when something is AI generated is, is a dangerous one as a teacher. Um, there was one, there was one case, a professor down in Texas, for example, who failed a bunch of students in his class and some of whom he kept from graduating because he used an AI plagiarism detector on, on, and in, and the way he did it is he went into chat GPT and he asked it, did you write this? <laughs> and ChatGPT said, "Sure, I wrote that." Well, it hadn't, right? But that's not the kind of question you should. It's it's not a good that AI is not a good self analyzer and evaluator, right? And it doesn't keep track of all the answers it has for people. So, so you, you, you know, I think I think reality is you're just not going to know, and so you're you're going to have to change your instruction with that in mind either give people assignments where you say they get to use it or 
or have them do it in constrained situations, um, like in a classroom where they don't have a choice. They have to generate themselves. Of course, it's the burning question in, in a lot of people's <laughs> minds right now. Um, so you need to be careful and don't, yeah, don't flunk people based on ChatGPT's uh, assessment. Of I mean, I remember being a high school student and being accused of plagiarism by one of my history professors. And I had spent a lot of time and energy and was very proud of this, this report that I wrote. And it, it, re, it I tuned out of, of social studies for the rest of my time in high school. Cause I was, of course it, it you know, cause it, it just, uh, being falsely accused is really damaging. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, an attack to your <laughs> to your values to your core that uh, yeah that could definitely lead to that outcome. Um, now, uh, Tim, I want to go back to to where where we were. So you were talking about this need, and I'm I'm thinking back uh, at the book, and uh, there's this the section where you talk about Horace Mann and the Prussian system, and where you say uh, transforming schools to prioritize wisdom would be the most fundamental system change since the formation of mass education. This is more or less what you said where, where we were a few before answering this question. But there's another section um, in the book where you talk about resistant change in in, in big in, in, in organizations uh, and anyway in, in, and uh, the challenge that that poses. And one of the things that I have that I deal with that I reflect about is the resistance to change in academia relating to in the in my case to preparing graduate students to not being professors at the end of their graduate study uh, the their graduate school journey and there is this resistance to change these are big organizations these are old organizations now Coming back to the context of the book and, and, and what you've been reflecting about, and maybe also thinking of higher education, can you uh, do, do you have some reflections on on where so on what how we can kind of counter uh, uh, counterbalance this resistance to change in higher education and start making that change towards teaching wisdom versus uh, knowledge. Yeah, I'll be I'll, I'll be honest. I, I touched on it a little bit in the book, but I think that's the change re overcoming change resistance has really been a huge part of what I'm focusing on since the book was put out. And I I think it's a very the more I dig into it, the more intractable I think it is. Um, and this is unfortunate. First of all, there's a lot that an individual in an act in higher education can do. Right, you control your classroom you control your department, you're largely given a lot of flexibility in how to do that. Um, use it. <laughs> okay. But that, but, but really what tends to not happen is uh, there, there tends to be sort of anger about, about AI, you know, I'll call it the five stages of grief apply here, right? Denial and anger and, 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 uh, um, and I think, we're starting to see the community come out of that phase where they're just saying, I don't want to do it. I'm not willing to change, or it's really not that big a deal and I can write it out. Or in some cases it's, I don't like the direction the world is going. So, I, so I'm going to, you know, hold my breath. 
Um, I think we're starting to see most classrooms and most instructors come out of that mode and realize that there are ways that it can help them in their jobs and there are ways that can help their students. The broader changes, um, you know, honestly, I think it's going to happen. And I'll speak only to the U.S. system, but I, I think this is probably true of westernized, you know, collegiate uh, paradigms. Um, I, th I think many colleges are on the way to dying, and this is going to accelerate that. And unfortunately, the change resistance is so strong, and there are so many impediments to even forward-thinking college presidents and others to, to making changes. Either they have too many tenured faculty who can just thumb their nose, or they have too many collective decision-making processes that dilute any change so that it's less significant. Um, I think, I think that there that that along with financial health, that things like COVID really kind of instigated um, and problems that colleges are having. There are going to be a lot of colleges that die off. Um, the innovative models are largely um, in the third world and the emerging world. Who are willing to try a lot of new things um, to, you know, African countries, India right now, they're open to a lot of different models and probably will be first to get there. Because, because we have with an old established system is we have an old established bureaucracy. Even when people are forward thinking, bureaucracies, you know, to a large degree are set up to keep to 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 keep change from happening right to enforce processes and procedures and status quo and and to take variability out of the system um and i'm not sure there's an easy way to change that unless a couple of fundamentals occur one is that this the economic paradigm goes to another place and i think it will i think you're going to have online schools that are almost entirely AI run and AI taught. And the cost point for those, which will be important to serve a whole range of people in the world who can't get educated well, right, in the current paradigm, those will start to bleed into if it, it really comes down to are they teach, will they be instructing well enough? And will companies be okay with the products that come out? And if they are, they will undercut brick and mortar institutions in a much larger way than we've seen you know mcgill may do great but but you know some some small college somewhere is 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 probably not going to um so now how do we change it i think there are some speculations that i have one is which is there's a very weak tie between business needs and and higher education's output Right, business will has been saying for decades. We want more of this. We want more of the teaming, creative, you know, uh, broad, broadly educated person who can work with technology. And they're not finding enough of those people, is what they're saying. But that hasn't translated into a specific signal back to colleges, where I can. But I think things are going to change on that front. Right. If I want a critical thinker more so than I want a chemist and a salesperson and a marketing person, I want a critical thinker because they can be diverse. I'm going to start testing for that when I hire people. 
and those and and that will quickly show this school produces them better than that school. Right now, we don't have those measures. We don't have that feedback signal on colleges to force them to change. So it's a very difficult subject. I mean, the the reality is it may take death of a lot of the system before such change can be realized. Yeah, that's uh, it, it. Sounds sounds sad and negative, but it, it's it's probably a realistic point of view. And the thing is, yeah, there's so many stakeholders, and then there's this resistance, you know, this this inertia uh, of the bureaucracy, um, and then it's kind of you know the academia and and uh, pr the private and even government. Although there are interfaces, like the place you were working at at the MIT, clearly was an interface between the the, the two worlds, but at you know in a large scale there it's different planets and it's hard to make them talk together and and actually collaborate because it, it would be kind of a collaboration if we got there it's funny because it it's kind of a the phd and and what i talk about on the podcast is kind of a microcosmos of of what you just said it's how you know we're producing these many phds and then they get it in the end and they need to scramble and 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 kind of you know, prove themselves to uh, an employer that's maybe reticent to hire them. Um, and it, there, there is a, a lack of communication and of effective communication because there, there is some communication and there, there are examples of things that work, but it's not generalized. I'm going to ask if you have a, a few more minutes Uh, just to to talk about the aspect of um, I'm going to say okay yeah, of self awareness and I, I was a little bit surprised when I saw it uh, when I, when I read that part uh, you also mentioned the the uh, um, your personal experience of of uh, discovering you have ADHD and how how now you AI is kind of a, a partner. <laughs> That that kind of kind of uh, supports you or complements you in in aspects that are that uh, of course ADHD uh, is you know prevents you from performing better. But the self awareness part, maybe I, we could finish the the episode on that because I think it's it's a good way to finish focused on the person, on the listener in this case or the person watching. But can you can you talk a little bit about uh, what you talk what you wrote in the book about this part of self awareness and For me, it was counterintuitive. I wasn't expecting to, for you to go there, uh, to go so micro, let's say, uh, and so uh, so uh, introspective in a certain way. Uh, but I, I think it's important to to talk about it. I'm really happy, and and no one's no one's asked me about this particular section, but I, I feel I feel it's really a hidden a hidden gem in this whole conversation. Um, You know, here's the way I look at it. If if what if what AI is doing is affecting judgments, okay, and if what we need to do is be able to conduct judgments better, then the even decisions about what AI tools I surround myself with to make myself most effective, um, decisions about how I may be mentally biased in certain ways that I decide or um, I may be uh, too easy to discount a certain point of view, or I may be highly reactive. So I'll give. So I gave the example of myself personally, 
Uh, I don't think it's a unique example in the sense that it just happens to be one guy, right? I have a tendency to um, to have racing brain, where my brain will go off in ten different directions, and I and 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 so if I'm let's say dictating some of my writing in in while I'm out for a walk, where I think better, then. I I would like to have an AI tell me, you know, you're going, you, you started on this subject and now you're off here. Come back to that and tell me more, right? It's a, it's a, it doesn't have to be that smart. It's almost like having a psychotherapist along with me for the walk, right? Or, or, or saying, does this relate to the topic you were talking about yesterday? Expand on that more. Um, or you're using too many big words, right? You're, you're trying to hit an audience that says, but you know, many other people might not need that, right? That's particular to my brain and how it processes and how it, and what it most needs. We all have those, right? It may be that, you know, I'm a manager and I do well with sort of louder in your face people because I know what they're thinking or whatever, but I'm not doing very well with the quiet person in the corner in, in terms of pulling out what, what their thoughts are or even understanding how to relate to them best. Okay, well, um, you know that that awareness is critical, both because I can do something about it. Right? There's, there's, that's, I pro- it might exist now. I'm not sure, but it's it's soon to. Um, I can go talk to an avatar that has that personality, try to accomplish a certain goal with that avatar, and practice that skill. Right? But it only works if I know that's something I need to work on. Or it may be that I have a strength, right? A lot of ADHDs, in my case, a lot of ADHDs are good big picture thinkers. It's kind of the, the cousin of autism in the sense autism may, tends to focus on a lot of detail. The ADHDs are kind of detail, are bad with detail, but good with big picture. Okay, if that's a strength of mine, and I'm not, you know, it's for others to judge here, but if that's a strength of mine, then I want to make sure that I surround myself with AI that that accentuates that strength, right? Or with or or make sure that other people on my team know that this is a personal strength. This is my personal weakness. Um, we can work together on these things. That self awareness r- really has been emerging as an important characteristic over decades. But AI just takes to another level. Self awareness is is currency it's it's performance gold and that's true whether you're managing or whether you're you're doing you know the individual work so uh, i thought that's an important characteristic that ai just sort of takes to another level that i think um you know, it's taken me decades to, to learn about myself. It's still an ongoing thing. And I, anybody who's got a few gray hairs could say that, of course. <laughs> um, or in my case, lack of hair. <laughs> but but, but, um, but it's, it's not just about, again, it's, all, it's not just about what you know in your field, okay, or how you can reason in your field. It's knowing about the world. And that includes yourself and the people you surround yourself with. Um, that's you know solving real problems in the real world has has all of these squishy factors, and and your brain is a big part of that squishiness. 
of course, literally. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, Tim, we're really getting getting to the to the end of the interview now, and thank you for giving me this extra time and, and allowing me to ask this last question that I that I wanted to ask about. I think um, now, if people want to say thank you, uh, people have said thank you actually. Um, uh, also, so Priyanka says thank you. For uh, for the approach towards uh, harmful use of AI, uh, uh, Alamin also thank you for the insightful answer. Thank you, uh, Priyanka and and Alamin for being here for for being here live. Uh, it's a privilege to have you you guys here. You will now be part of the episode, which is cool too. <laughs> um, but if they want to reach out to you personally, say thank you. What's the best way to reach out to you, Tim? Generally, the contact page on my website, which is, you know, timdacy.com slash contact, or, you know, they can reach me on LinkedIn, which will, you know, if they want to message me, there's a direct uh, email there they, they can reach me on. So happy. I, you know, I really don't think I have all the answers. This really is a, a, a strong debate that uh, we'll we'll see how things emerge, but uh, of course, no, no one has all the answers. Not even AI. <laughs> but uh, that's right. That's right. But uh, uh, you know, it's. I think people who listen might be piqued to I know dig dig into a question more with you, or just want to give give feedback. Now, if they want to get the book Wisdom Wisdom Factories AI Games and the Education of a Modern Worker, what's the best way to 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 get it? Uh, it's available um, in English-speaking countries, really anywhere books are sold. Uh, Amazon is the only place the ebook exists, uh, but the paperback and hardcover you can get um, really at, at, at any any even your local bookstore. Perfect. So what I'll do is I'll I'll uh, I'll get the uh, the Amazon link and put it in the show notes, and then maybe if you have uh, an editor page or something like that, if you have a link, a specific link, you can share to the physical book. Would you please do, um, and uh, and I'll put it in the show notes. Tim, um, this has been a pleasure. It's something that I hadn't had a, a deep conversation about ever. Well, especially on the show, but uh, you know, it's been a privilege, privilege to have an hour to be with someone who's been working in the domain and thinking and reflecting about this. Uh, for for so long and so deeply, um, I want to want to thank you for for your time, and uh, I'm deeply grateful for all you shared and and for the the humanity that you brought to this question that is super media. You know, it's it has a lot of media attention right now, and often it feels like we're just talking about uh, bits and bytes, but it feels to me uh, deeply now that. Uh, the human aspect of it is uh, very important, especially if we're thinking of our education and how, of our future as workers. We need to reflect. We need to be self-aware, like we just mentioned, and uh, and um, be be careful, especially if you're working in education, to use these ethically, to use these smart in a, in a smart way, to use these tools in a smart way. And to keep an eye out for the evolutions, because clearly, from what you're saying, they're coming and they're coming fast. Absolutely. Uh, uh, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to another Beyond the Thesis conversation with me, David Mendez, and my guest, Tim Dacey. If you found any value in this conversation, please share it with someone like you. 
and help Beyond the Thesis reach as many ears as possible. And if you want to help a little bit more, please go to papaphd.com forward slash audience and fill in the survey that is there for you and leave a comment so I can give you a shout out in a future episode. Thank you for being a fan. Happy listening and happy sharing.